That's a upbeat song of lamentation. Lamentation. Second Samuel chapter one. A song of lamentation. There's lots of songs of lamentation. Lots of funeral songs. Lots of mourning songs. Now, it seems to be to me that there were a lot more mourning songs, lamentation songs, written in the past than in the present. Today, most songs are written about abundant life, about the joy, about uh, exalting Christ, which is all good. But very few songs or lamentation are written anymore. And I believe that those who believe and say that you can look at the songs that are being written in a culture, in a generation, and that will give you insight into what people are like. And so uh, you can listen. I, I don't know what rap says about what people are like because I don't understand any of the words. I can't follow along. And so I think most people just got beat, boom, 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 going on. But uh, if you'll think back to all the songs, George Jones with that broken heart said, he stopped loving her today. And it's hard to listen to that song without being taken back to your own time of grief. Uh, Don McLean, 10 years later, after Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and the Big Bopper died in that plane crash, he put together, bye, bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Them good old boys were drinking and rye, singing, this'll be the day that I die. Song of Lamentation. A funeral song. Alan Jackson after 9-11. In December of 2001, he said that he woke up early one Sunday morning and the words to were you there when the world stopped turning. He said the lyrics were on his mind. He said it was like they were just sent to him. And he penned those words. You know, I don't know the difference between Iraq and Iran. You know, I believe in Jesus, and that's what I understand. And those words talks about how he felt on 9-11. And uh, later he was asked about how it came. He said, you know, I can't really take credit for that song. It just came to me. I wrote down the words to the song that early that morning. And then uh, later that afternoon, I put the tune to it. And he said, I finished it in one day. And he said, you know... I can't do a concert anymore without people wanting to hear that song. And he said, looking back at why I wrote that song, he said, I guess I just didn't want to ever forget how I felt that fateful morn. And here we are coming up on a 9-11 anniversary here. I guess it's on Tuesday. It'll be a day that we'll be taken back to how we felt that day. We'll be taken back to uh, perhaps some of the anger that we had, some of the thoughts that we had. I, I know that probably all of us that were 
around and cognitive in, in 2001 on 9-11, uh, I think that probably we all remember, we got that phone call from our wife or our husband or someone says, look on TV, you got to turn on the radio and see what's going on. And I, I think we can all remember uh, where we were and what went on. You know, I personally don't know anyone that died on 9-11. I don't know anybody. I don't even know anybody that knew anybody. Now, we're a long way away from New York and Washington, D.C. and Boston where the plane left and, you know, it crashed out there in Pennsylvania. Uh, but further east you get, and I understand in New York City, there was very few people that didn't know someone that knew someone that died on that day, whether it's the people working in the towers, it's the firemen that rushed in, it's the policemen that went in, and it, it was such... A horrific day and and we'll never forget 9-11 we won't forget December 7th the day that will live in infamy when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor there are many many events that as a nation will always remember now it's very interesting to think about it although I personally didn't know anybody that lost their life on 9-11, uh, I still grieved. I, I still had sorrow. I, I had lots of emotions on that day. And there was national grief that took place. For many on that day, there was personal grief that took place. And so we come to verse 17 of chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, and it says that, of course, the news of Saul's death and Jonathan's death, David is now beginning to deal with. And it says in verse 17, then David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan, a song of lamentation. This was his where were you when the world stopped turning? This was his American pie. This, this was his, will the circle be unbroken? I'll fly away. All these tunes have been written, these poems have been written, so people will be able to sing and remember an event in the song with the circle be unbroken he speaks about the day that the hearse came and got his mother and how painful that was will the circle be unbroken and so David after hearing the news now it makes sense that a songwriter would write a song a poet would write a poem and so since David is both David is in the beginning stages now of being a psalmist, of writing songs. And the book of Psalms is literally a book of songs that David penned most of them. And so he's a poet, he's a writer. And so it would make sense that he would, he would uh, use that talent, that gift, that expression of himself to write down this funeral song, this song of lamentation in the grieving of Saul and Jonathan. And he commanded it, 
that it be taught to the people of Judah. And so you have a lot of leadership things taking place. You have a lot of David's thoughts about what the people need, what needs to happen, the regrouping of people. And in his effort to regroup people, he puts together this, this song of lamentation with a purpose of revitalizing the grieving people of Israel. He wanted to use it to, 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 to cause people to want to have an army again because most of the army was devastated when they lost their lives there on Mount Geboa. Obviously, their uh, trust in leadership is difficult now. They've lost Saul. They've lost Jonathan. Now, the truth is, the majority of people in Israel did not have a personal relationship with Saul. He was their king. They had a distant relationship, but yet they're grieving the loss of their king. They're grieving the commander. They're grieving the people that they knew that lost their lives. They're, they're grieving the loss of the glory of Israel. And so David puts together this song of lamentation to bring them back together, to heal hearts, to heal their souls, to, to give them that solid ground again, to help them grieve. Because David has already experienced enough death, he's already seen enough death, and he knows how painful grief is. And he knows that it devastates people. It, it takes away people's bravery. It takes away people's desire to move forward again in life. And Israel will not be able to survive unless they're able to recover from the loss of Saul and the troops on Mount Geboah. And so he writes this lamentation song, this funeral song, and he commanded that it be taught to all the people, and it is known as a song of the bow and is recorded in the book of Jashar. And so this, this, this poem that we're about to read, this song that he penned, together, penned, is what he wanted the people of every generation, of every time from that point on, he wanted them to sing this song and remember King Saul, and remember Jonathan, and remember what this army experienced. He believed it was important for the future of Israel. He begins in verse 19, and right away you see that David takes the high road. David takes the road of a statesman here. You know, we've seen just recently uh, I think uh, some petty responses and some political responses to the loss of John McCain. And, and you, you've seen how some people were guarded about coming out and saying that uh, they are grieving or, uh, you know, uh, wishing the family well, you know, and, and uh, allowing personal differences to get in the way of doing the right thing. And, and David had lots of information that he could have shared that would not have put Saul in a great light. He could have ruined the reputation of Saul. He could have, he could have shared about what happened out there in the cave and how David should be celebrated. 
he, he might have talked about all the times he had to duck the man's spear. But he didn't do any of that. David, as you remember, was never uh, an enemy of Saul. Saul was always the enemy of David. And, and David saved his life on more than one occasion. And so we see here David taking the role of a leader and, and realizing what needed to happen beyond his personal experiences. And he was thinking more about the people's recovery and the nation's recovery than he was about his own personal experiences with Saul. And he says, your pride and joy, O Israel, lies dead on the hills. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. The glory has been lost. The pride and the joy of Israel has been lost. You know, an army back in those days and today as well, when the army marches through the capital, it's, an, it's a demonstration of pride. It's a demonstration of the glory of the country. It's a demonstration of who they are. And people line the streets and they applaud their army. They applaud their king coming in from battle. They applaud their king leading the army out of the city into battle. It's their pride and joy. It's their protection after all. It's their way of life. No one can survive in, in David's time without having an army. You can't survive. They're, they're, in the Middle East, in David's time, you can't have any Switzerland's. Now, Switzerland has an army, but they're always neutral, right? You can't have that. You'll be overrun. You won't last long. And so you've got to have pride in this army. And so he begins his song of lamentation by saying, Your pride and joy, O Israel, lies dead on the hills. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. And so he says, remember the fallen heroes. Remember those who have given their life for our protection. And then he says in verse 20, don't announce the news in Gath. Don't proclaim it in the streets of Ashkelon or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice and the pagans will laugh in triumph. And so here, David says, Look, do not give your pearls to swine. That's Jesus' teaching. And, and that can be applied here. This grieving, this, this song of lamentation, this remembering of the great loss that we've experienced is only for us. We're not to share it. He said, we don't need the people in, in Gath rejoicing over this loss. And he says in verse 21, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fruitful fields producing offerings of grain, for there the shield of the mighty heroes was defiled. The shield of Saul will no longer be anointed with oil. And so here he curses Mount Gilboa. He says that there was such a devastating event that took place on Mount Gilboa, may it never produce life again. May it be cut off from, from production. May it be a barren place. May we remember that to be the place of this, this horrible, horrible loss that we've experienced. 
where the mighty heroes have been defiled, the shield of the mighty heroes have been defiled, and where the shield of Saul will never again be anointed with oil. And then in verse 22, which is probably where the name of this song of lamentation comes from, he says, the bow of Jonathan was powerful. Jonathan was skilled with a bow. Jonathan could, could kill enemies with his bow and arrow. And the sword of Saul did its mighty work. They shed the blood of their enemies and pierced the bodies of mighty heroes. And so he says, we need to recognize Jonathan and Saul. We need to recognize their skill, that they were warriors, that they fought with bravery, and they were effective in their fighting. And then in verse 23, he says, how beloved and gracious were Saul and Jonathan. Once again, he had strong attachment with Jonathan, as we already know David did. But here he speaks about the graciousness and the love of Saul. They were together in life and death. And that is true. Even though Jonathan stood up to Saul, even though Jonathan oftentimes did not agree with the, the scheming and the decision-making of Saul, Jonathan was with him. It was his dad. It was his king. Even though Jonathan understood that David had been the replacement for his dad, Saul, and Jonathan was willing to forego his own uh, possibility of being the king of Israel, that his place would be taken by Saul, he, he still, he still followed and he still honored his dad, the king. And, and David comments on that. David eulogizes their connection with each other. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. And he says we need to remember the attachment that Jonathan had with Saul and Saul had with Jonathan because it was a benefit to our nation. And they held together and they held on to each other and they marched together into war. And then he says in verse 24, O women of Israel, weep for Saul, for he dressed you in luxurious scarlet clothing in garments decorated with gold. Here he's just saying we need to remember the, uh, the good economy that the leadership of Saul provided for us. You see, by having a strong army, now they did get subdued by the Philistines and they had some losses along the way, but they were secure enough within the, the, the nation of Judah and Israel that they were able to have a good economy. Now, we all know in our day and time that if there's not security in a country, there's no economy. If, if all the money is spent on protecting yourself, then the economy is going to have a hard time, right? And if you're not strong enough to protect yourself, then commerce doesn't take place. And so we have to have a strong military for our own economy. That's just the way it is. It was that way as well. And David says, the women of Israel should rejoice, should, should honor, should think well of what Saul provided for us because he made it possible for us to have the quality of life that we had. And he says in verse 25, Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen in battle. 
Jonathan lies dead on the hills. And so he's beginning to summarize. And he says, oh, how I weep for you, my brother, Jonathan. Oh, how much I love you. And your love for me was deep. Deeper than the love of a woman. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Stripped of their weapons, they lie ahead. All verse 26 is a doozy, isn't it? Matter of fact, many people use this verse of Scripture to speak about that David had a relationship, a sexual relationship, a romantic relationship with, with uh, Jonathan. Because here David says, And your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of women. And, and that's really a narrow-minded view of that verse to say that men cannot love each other that deeply. And the truth is, men can love each other that deeply and not be sexually connected. Now, an interesting thought here is, you know, now David is about to have Michal again as his wife, but, but David was given Michal, right? And uh, she didn't care for him so much. Now, David is going to begin to add lots of wives to his, his, his situation. But his relationship with uh, Jonathan's sister, Michal, was not romantic. It was not close. It was not intimate. They did not share their heart with each other. There was not that bond there because of her. Because she didn't, she would not give herself to David because of her loyalty to Saul. And so this is a remark based on, I tried and tried and tried with your sister. I tried for us to be close. I tried for us to have a healthy relationship and she would have nothing to do with it. But I'm close with you, Jonathan, is his stating there. Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen. Stripped of their weapons, they lie dead. David is encouraging. David is giving the Israelites an opportunity to grieve. To grieve nationally, to grieve as a nation the loss of their king, and to grieve personally for those that have lost their lives. He understood the devastating power of grief, the devastating power of loss. And when a people do not know how to grieve, the impact on their life is huge. And I believe David understood that. I believe that's what you see here. Now, our culture, we do not grieve well. We don't want to grieve. We avoid grief at all costs. And, and I think that the lack of helping people know what it means to grieve, teaching people to grief, to grieve, ha has a huge impact in people's lives. People can go through life stuck in anger, stuck in denial stuck with bitterness, stuck in resentment because they have not grieved the loss of a loved one. 
Now, people always say there's two things you can count on. You can count on death and taxes, right? Well, there's another one. You can count on death, taxes, and you can count on grieving. We're all going to grieve. People say, you know, kids would also say, students say, I don't need algebra, I'm never going to use it. Well, you, you might not need algebra, it depends on what you do in your life. To this day, when I'm writing my sermon, I have yet to put together an algebraic equation. Now, the truth is, I wouldn't know how to do it, but I have not done that. I guess if I were to sit down and really get the dimensions of the arc, I might have to figure some of that out. But everyone needs to learn to work out grief because we're all going to experience it. We're all going to grieve. Moms and dads, you probably have a list either written down on your mind of things that you want to talk to your children about to prepare them for this world. If you don't have learning how to grieve on the list, put it on there. Put it on there. Just put it in there where knowing God, loving God, loving others, living a moral life, learning how to make a living, learning how to handle money, learning how to reconcile in broken relationships, and you have all those goals, you're thinking about, these are the things I need to teach my children, how to change a tire, right? How to do this, that, and the other. If you raise your children until they go off to college and you have not equipped them how to handle grief, you've made a mistake because they're going to grieve. You may have been fortunate that they have lived 18 years and they have not had to experience personal close-up death, but there's no way any child that's grown up here in Alito the last 12 years has not experienced loss. This week, Scott Cartwright passes away. And every kid that's gone through the middle school here has had some kind of connection with Coach Cartwright. You can't escape death. It's part of life. And so we need to learn to grieve. And that's what David is getting together. There's some myths about grief that I think will help us today. And I help at least get started. And, and what I'm trying to accomplish today with this passage, this, this, this song of lamentation is to, to just sow that seed in your life to begin that grief understanding, to begin a dialogue with God and with your loved ones about grief. Number one, the pain will go away faster if you ignore it. That really is our culture's mindset. Go to the funeral, keep your emotions intact, do what you got to do, but if you will ignore the pain you feel, it'll go away faster. That's a lie. It may go away for a time, but it's going to come back. And whether we realize it or not, that grief is going to manifest itself in places and in ways that we had no clue. Grief doesn't go away if you ignore it. It certainly doesn't go away faster if you ignore it. Now, moms and dads, many times you have this mindset 
that when a loss happens, you're going to protect your child from hurt and pain. Think about what you're trying to accomplish. You're going to protect your child from hurt and pain. When are they going to learn how to deal with the pain of hurt, of loss of a loved one? You can't keep everybody in your world alive. You can't keep your child from loss. You just can't do it. And so you're going to protect your child from grieving while they're young. And, and what you're going to have is when they grow up and they become older, they're not going to have the tools in understanding they need to have when they lose loved ones. And they're up against the eight ball when that happens. I heard this more than once. You know, grandpa died, but we're not taking the kids to the funeral because we don't want them to be upset. Most of the times what the adults are saying to the kids is this. I don't want to have the conversation with them, so we're going to ignore it. I'm going to keep them away from it. I'm going to send them to school and keep them busy because, after all, staying busy and staying in a normal routine is the very best thing we can do for our children. And so our children have to go through life acting like everything is okay when everything is not okay. And, and there is taught, indirectly for sure, there is taught that if the child shows sadness, sorrow, that it's somehow or another wrong. And it's absolutely right. Absolutely right. There is no way we lose people in our lives that we care about and we're not sad. We're not full of sorrow. We also need to teach grief so that people will understand the difference between grieving and depression. Because grieving and depression are not the same thing. Sometimes there's depression in the grief, but they're not the same thing. And we need to help them understand that. Another one is this. It's important for us to be strong for others. I've heard that a whole lot in the funeral activities. I've got to be strong for my family. I've got to be strong for my children. I've got to be strong for my mom and dad. I've got to be the strong one. And, and that is the wrong mindset to have. Because the person that's being strong for others doesn't understand what their role is in the life of others. If they see themselves as the protector, if they see themselves as the nurturer for others, they're going about it the wrong way. The right way to go about it is, I have lost my loved one and I'm hurting beyond description. Will you hurt with me is the right approach. Let's hurt together. Let's walk through this time together. And if you portray yourself as someone that's strong for the benefit of others, then that grief process is not allowed to happen. The Jews have a deal called a sitting shiva. And a sitting shiva is this, that for the first seven or eight days after the loss of a loved one, all the family, all the friends stay together and they sit. It's a sitting shiva. And, and, and their statement is this, you're going to grieve alone your loved one for a long, long time. But now we only grieve together. That's, that's really a good, good process. We're going to be together. 
We're going to hang together for a while. We're going to support each other. We're going to be real with each other. We're not going to try to be something we're not. We're not going to be strong for others. We're going to be honest and open about our grief so that the process can happen. Can happen. Another myth out there is this. If you don't cry, it means you don't care or you didn't care. Or if you don't cry, then you're not sorry that you lost the loved one. That's really not true. There may be lots of things going on. There may be lots of things going on in that person's life. And, and for whatever reason, they're not able to cry right then. They don't cry right then, but they may be experiencing the pain of the loss just like others who are able to cry. And we understand that. Not everyone handles grief and approaches grief and processes grief the same way. Grief should only last a year. We're going to give you a year to grieve. We're going to give you a year to be in mourning. But after that year is up, get over it. Snap out of it. Come on. It's been a year. What are you doing? There's no time to grief. There's no magical formula that if you'll do these four things after a year, you're going to be okay. For some people, it's going to be longer than a year. For some people, it's going to be less than a year that they begin to accept what has happened and, and they don't live differently. They, they live a new normal. They live a new normal. They, they still live with the loss, but they are beginning now to live differently with the loss, but not for a year. Don't put a time limit on it. And another, I think, very damaging piece of information about grieving in our culture is this. Moving on means forgetting about your loss. Now, you, you can't move on till you forget. You don't forget. You don't forget your loved one. You don't forget them. You don't forget the loss of your husband. You don't forget the loss of your wife, of your mom, or your dad, your brother or sister. You don't forget them. Hopefully you don't forget them. Matter of fact, this song of lamentation that, that David writes down here, one of the purposes of writing this is so that they wouldn't forget. It's important that we not forget. And so there's not a connection between moving on and forgetting. We move on in a new normal with the memory. And we know that we are beginning to move forward from the loss and we've worked the grief process when the memory is precious to us and we're able to live a new normal. We're able to function again. We're able to love. We're able to care. We're able to engage in life again. Good news for believers. Good news for believers. We will grieve. Grief is beneficial. We will grieve, and grief is beneficial. Grief helps us to learn what love is. Grief helps us to realize what matters most. Grief helps us to reorganize our priorities. Grief helps us to learn 
not to get too bad out of shape about things that ultimately don't matter. Because after all, the loss of a loved one matters. And so I'm not going to worry about losing the ball game. I'm not going to worry about this situation. I'm not going to worry about this project loss at work. I'm not going to be consumed with this issue in my life because it's not something that's anguish worthy. Losing my wife is anguish worthy. It's painful. It grieves. But I, I'm going to go through that process and recognize the beneficial aspect of grief. And learn from that. Going to a funeral, as I've told you perhaps a time or two, it's a good thing for me. I go to a lot of funerals, preach a lot of them, attend a lot of them. Every time I leave a funeral, it helps, gives me an opportunity to realize that that funeral was better than a birthday party, as Ecclesiastes says. Because it gives me an opportunity to reload what matters most. People, my relationship with God, our ministry, what we do, what people mean to us. I, I hardly ever leave a funeral. I don't call my mother and dad. I just say hello. What's up? Where you been? Oh, I'm just driving down the highway. How's it going? Good, good. You know, just you want I want to talk to people. Reminder. It may have been a while for me. I'm, I'm not a regular caller. It reminds me. Touch base. Re-engage with what matters most. Benefits of grief. And the wonderful thing that Jesus has done for us by shedding his blood on the cross for us, by believing and trusting in him, we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope because of what he has done for us. And that means heaven, eternal life. The circle is not unbroken. Help us, Lord, to open up to the words of David here. Help us to understand the importance of grieving. Thank you for your Spirit's work in the matters of grief. May Jesus be exalted in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Ushers.